Uh, so far during this Advent series, Eight Women and a Baby, we have uh, looked at three ladies who are kind of connected to and associated with the birth of Jesus. Uh, the first two ladies we looked at, they came from the genealogy of Jesus that's recorded by Matthew right at the start of his gospel in, in Matthew 1. And the, the two ladies we looked at were Tamar and Rahab last week, T two women with rather colorful pasts, and yet both included in and, and very much part of the messianic line. And then the third woman we looked at last Sunday night was Eve. And when we looked at her, we discovered Christmas in Eden. And we, uh, we listened again to what have been described as kind of the first gospel, the first good news words, words of scripture that are found right back in only the third chapter of the Bible, where, where after sin has tragically invaded our lives and our world following the serpent's attack on humanity, we heard how God immediately promised and confirmed that an offspring of Eve's was going to come to crush the serpent's head. A descendant of the first woman, according to God, was going to come to crush Satan's head. And because Christmas celebrates the birth of that very offspring, we have included Eve as one of our eight women of Advent. If you've never thought about Eve at Christmas before, or if you've never reflected on Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 at this time of year before, then can I encourage you to do that? And if you weren't out last Sunday night, then maybe consider listening in on, on the podcast. This morning, we're going to highlight two more women and we're going back to the genealogy to the family tree of Jesus, where the next two mothers of Jesus who are listed by Matthew are these two, Ruth and the wife of Uriah, who, as we all know, was a woman named Bathsheba. Now, in some ways, I wish I could take these two women separately, but as it turns out, there aren't enough regular Sunday services in December to do that, and so for one service only, I'm going to attempt to consider two women and their stories in one sermon anyway. So if you have Matthew chapter 1 uh, open or on a device, we're going to read the first six verses. Last week we read the first uh, five. We're going to read the first six again. And as always here at Windsor, we're going to stand for the public reading of God's Word. Let's stand together. So this is the genealogy, says Matthew, of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amimadab, Amimadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Grab a seat. So Ruth's, uh, Ruth's story is found in, in an entire book of the Bible that bears her name. Ruth is the eighth book of the Old Testament. But what is immediately striking, and, and this hopefully is becoming a recurring theme. Ruth is an outsider. Just like Tamar, just like Rahab, Ruth is not from Jewish descent. 
And yet she plays a significant part in the history of Israel and in the family of Jesus. Outside in is more than just a brand name. It it captures a journey that many people make because of the grace of God, from outsiders to insiders, from lost to found, from excluded to included, from distant to right up close, from written off to written in to the greatest story ever told. Ruth, the Moabite woman. That's how she is described right at the start of the book that bears her name. And yet she is somehow incorporated into the redemptive Christmas story, into God's story, into our story. But how? How does that happen? Well, what we need to be really clear about are her outside credentials. Who are, who were the Moabites? What do you know about that particular people group? Well, if you want to find out anything about them, you've got to go back to Genesis chapter 19. You've got to go back to the sin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot and his wife, we never know her name, where Lot and his wife and their two daughters escape the destruction of Sodom. But as they escape, Mrs. Lot does something. She does what? turns round and turns into pillar of salt. Her two girls then get their dad drunk and sleep with him. Clearly the influence of life in sin city has rubbed off. And both daughters end up pregnant by their dad. Nine months later, they give birth to baby boys. One is called Ammon, the other is called Moab. One, the father of the Ammonites, the other, the father of the Moabites. Fast forward to Deuteronomy 23, part of the whole law, disclosure to the people of God, and God gives Moses these explicit instructions for the people of God. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. Ruth, the Moabite. Clearly her pedigree leaves a lot to be desired. Fast forward three more books, and you come to the biblical book of Ruth. And therefore something must have happened or needed to And it did, because how else does a woman from this kind of dodgy, barred, excluded people group end up in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world? How does that work? Well, obviously, I can't do the story or the book of Ruth justice in one sermon, never mind half a sermon. But let me quickly summarize the key events. So as we've often been doing during the series, are you sitting comfortably? Let's begin. So there's an Israelite family. And this little Israelite family is made up of a husband and a wife, and they've got two sons. And they move from Bethlehem. Hmm, hold that place. They move from Bethlehem to Moab to escape a famine that's taking place in the land. The husband, sadly, 
and somehow dies. We have no clue why, we have no clue how. Could have been as a result of the famine, don't know. But the husband sadly dies, leaving his wife, who's called Naomi, to raise her two boys. Both those boys, moving from Bethlehem to Moab, they marry Moabite girls. Ten years later, tragedy strikes this family again. Both sons die, leaving the girls as widows, just like their mother-in-law. So Naomi decides to take her two daughters-in-law called Orpah and Ruth. She decides to take them back to Bethlehem, a journey that would have lasted about a week. Halfway into that journey, Naomi has a change of heart. And she decides to send the two girls back to Moab, back to their own lives, back to pursue their own dreams, back to their own gods, back to settle in their own land. When Orpah hears this offer, she takes her mother-in-law up on it. She turns back, heads for Moab. But Ruth? Ruth doesn't. She looks at her mother-in-law and she says something extraordinary, especially for a Moabite. It's a phrase that I'll guarantee you most of us are familiar with. It's a declaration that has been healed as a model of faith conversion, and here it is. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death, love this, even death separates me from you. You see, just like Rahab, Last week in Joshua chapter 2, Ruth reaches a place where she confirms that Israel's God, Yahweh, is now her God. This is a personal, vocal declaration, proclamation of faith and commitment. So back they go to Bethlehem together. But even though when they get back to Bethlehem, there's a whole bunch of Naomi's relatives are there, but but none of them offer to look after these two ladies. So Ruth gets a job. She gleans what is left behind by reapers in a field that is owned by one of Naomi's wealthy relatives called Boaz. And Boaz is he's impressed with Ruth. He's impressed with Ruth's commitment to her mother-in-law, to Naomi. And so he decides, do you know, I'm going to look after your welfare and I'm also going to look after your protection because it was not a particularly safe job she was doing. And Ruth works there for about two months. But when the harvest season ends, so does the income. Still, nobody in the wider family takes these two ladies in to look after them. So Naomi hatches a plan. And I'm condensing a lot here. But Naomi hatches a plan and she instructs Ruth to call round to see Boaz at night and to get him to agree to marry her, as in Ruth. It's a bold move. Ruth takes it a bit further. 
she petitions Boaz to take on a role, not just to marry, but to take on a role of kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer or just redeemer, which is this tradition of, of kind of taking responsibility for destitute relatives. That's an even bolder move on Ruth's part to ask him to do that. Well, Boaz is even more impressed now. He's impressed by Ruth's character. He's impressed by her loyalty to Naomi. And so he agrees to do both. He agrees to marry her and he agrees to take on this role. Long story short, Ruth and Boaz, who are an unlikely couple, they get married and they have a son and their son is called Obed. And now we're back to Matthew chapter one because Obed becomes the grandfather of none other than King David. And as Matthew reminds us, right up front. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, who's the son of David. You see, Ruth is right in the heart of the family tree of Jesus, an outsider, now an insider. The excluded, now included, who by the amazing grace of God in her life has been transformed in that incredible declaration of faith and courage and resilience and commitment. You see, grace really does make beauty out of ugly things. People who might otherwise have been written off have their stories rewritten. Ruth is in the family tree of the Messiah. No one is beyond the reach and grace of God. And before I kind of make a few more comments on geography, let me highlight one more insightful verse about, about this woman. Some of you will know this verse. Ruth chapter three, verse 11. And we could spend forever on this verse, but you know something? Ruth had a reputation. Ruth had a reputation in her community. People observed something in this woman and they talked about it. And here's what they observed. And this is what Boaz says. All the people of my town, Bethlehem, Know that you are a woman of noble character. You see, if you ever need a reason why Ruth's included in the family tree of Jesus, there it is. Ruth's a woman of recognized virtue. Her character spoke volumes. You see, as someone has said, it's not about ethnicity, it's about ethics, if you like. Who you are is not determined by where you're from. It's not determined by your upbringing, your background. It's determined by the state of your heart because, warning, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Our identity is ultimately found in God. Our identity is ultimately found in the grace of God which trumps race. And whenever Ruth declared that Naomi's God, the one God, Yahweh, was her God, that declaration changed her life, changed her heart from the inside out, and the evidence of that change was seen by everyone around her. All the people of my town see that you're a woman of noble character. Integrity, authenticity, those are words to describe Ruth. And therefore, her showing up in the family tree of Jesus is no big deal. But back to Bethlehem. Although, let me ask you a question. What is your reputation? What is my reputation? What do all the people in your workplace 
say about you? All the people in your community, what do they say about you? What do they say about me? But back to Bethlehem, because I do find it interesting that all the action happens here. And obviously at this time of year, the little town of Bethlehem features strongly, but you know, it also has pretty major significance in the history of Israel pre-first Christmas. It's to Bethlehem that Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth returned. It was in Bethlehem that Ruth and Boaz got married and had a son called Obed. It was in Bethlehem that Obed raised a family which included a descendant who would become king. It was to Bethlehem that Joseph and Mary traveled. And it was in Bethlehem that Jesus, the true king, was born. And so as Micah predicted, but you, Bethlehem, and then that big word, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one, out of you, Bethlehem will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. You know, the big story of God, the big story of the Bible, it all connects, it all hangs together. Even geography matters. The location of the birth of the Messiah might have been a surprise to lots of people. I mean, lots of people thought Bethlehem was this kind of backwater village. But Bethlehem has an important place in the narrative of God's story, in our story. And it also reminds us that God keeps meeting us in unexpected places. God keeps using unexpected places to accomplish his plans. And so as well as not writing people off, let's not write locations off either. That's Ruth. It's half a sermon. Bathsheba. How she connected to the Christmas baby. Well, as I said, and as we read earlier, she's not referred to by name. Here's how Matthew refers to her as. She's Uriah's wife. Do you know what the reason for that is, I think? The reason for that is to act as a constant reminder of David's most famous sin. Yet Bathsheba might have become David's wife, but she wasn't David's wife in the first place. Bathsheba was the wife of someone else. And I reckon most of us know this remarkable story where David sins big style. And yet he finds forgiveness. Although, please be clear on this, his sin is not forgotten. The family tree of Jesus confirms that. The very fact that we're talking about it now does so as well. David is king. He's king of Israel. He's a powerful man. Story is found in 2 Samuel. And in chapter 8, we find that he makes a name for himself by striking down 18,000 Edomites. In chapter 9, we read about how David deals ever so kindly with, quote, crippled son of his friend, Jonathan. And then in chapter 10, he defeats the Ammonites, or the Amorites, not the Ammonites, the Amorites. And so David, in 2 Samuel 8, 9, 10, he's on a bit of a roll, he's on a bit of a high, and so you get into 2 Samuel chapter 11, and you read that although it was time when all the kings went off the battle, you discover that David decided to stay at home, a decision that would change his life forever. It's funny how that happens, how certain decisions made in a moment can profoundly impact your future. Again, long story shortened. David sees and sends for Bathsheba. Why? Because he wants to sleep with her. You see, there's more 
than a whiff of hashtag me too story going on here, I believe. See, David is a man of power who abuses his power to take advantage of a woman and a married woman at that. See, as the writer to Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. Problems really kick in whenever it turns out that Bathsheba's pregnant. And so David tries to cover up his mess. And he invites Uriah, who's Bathsheba's husband, to come home from battle in the hope that Uriah will come home and will go home to see his wife and sleep with her. And therefore, whenever Bathsheba's pregnancy goes public, everybody's going to think, ah, must have happened at the time when Uriah was home. Problem is, Uriah doesn't comply. Uriah comes home from the battlefield, but doesn't go home. And so David sends him back to the battlefield with explicit orders for him to be placed in the direct firing line, ensuring he would never come home. And that's exactly what happened. And so the sins are stacking up. And then David tries to do the right thing by marrying Bathsheba. But the Bible is really clear on how God felt about David. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so God sends a prophet to call David out. And that prophet does call David out. And David repents and David is forgiven. But the repercussions of David's sin are truly tragic. Nathan the prophet makes it clear that because of David's sin, because David showed, and here's how scripture records it, because David showed utter contempt for the Lord, the son that he's going to have with Bathsheba, that son's going to die. See, the crazy, stupid choices that we make, yes, they can be forgiven, thank God, but the consequences of our sinful choices are rarely forgotten. And Bathsheba must have been devastated. Her son's dead. But her story isn't over, not by a long stretch. Even, or eventually, she and David will have another boy. And that boy will be called Solomon. And from the moment he is born, we read, the Lord loved him. The Lord loved Solomon. And you fast forward a number of years and Solomon as Judah succeed David as king, but near the end of his life when things have become a bit unstable, when things have begun to unravel in David's life, one of David's other sons tries to grab hold of the throne. Re-enter Nathan the prophet who sees what's going on here and he gets involved. But rather than go directly to David, rather than go directly to the king this time, Nathan goes to Bathsheba and he says, Bathsheba, I want you to intervene. And off she goes. And Bathsheba goes to her husband and she reminds him of who exactly was meant to succeed him as king. Now that was a brave thing to do in that culture and at that time. For Bathsheba, even though she was David's wife, the king, for her to enter into David's presence and remind him as if he has forgotten what he had said he would do or what was meant to happen, that Solomon was meant to succeed him as well. That was a brave thing to do. But she informs David about her other son's lust and grasp for power, and she encourages her husband to do the right thing. And she says, why should you do the right thing? Because all Israel's watching David. 
And just at the end of this really important conversation, Nathan walks in and he confirms that Bathsheba is absolutely right. And again, long story short, David listens, David does the right thing. Solomon is installed as the new king. And as a result, David's line continues through Solomon, as Matthew 1, 6 tells us, to Joseph, who is the earthly father of Jesus. You see, here's the point, or at least one point, big point. Bathsheba's courage and her input into David's life at a critical moment of history ensured and played a huge part in the family tree of Jesus. Again, it's grace. It's the grace of God at work in the lives of ordinary people. People whose lives didn't always go well. People whose lives didn't always go according to plan. People's lives who were almost wrecked by the actions of others, by the abuse of actions of others. Lives that were tainted and scarred by the effects of sin. Bathsheba had her fair share of heartache and pain. But the grace of God, the grace of God knows no limits. It reaches and it keeps reaching in the broken lives, offering hope and forgiveness. It transforms, it redeems. It just keeps making beauty out of ugly things. And so Bathsheba makes the list. She's included in the line that led to Jesus, although she would never have known that. And I know Bathsheba is sometimes seen as a woman in the wrong place at the wrong time. She's sometimes seen as a victim of her circumstances. And there are even those who sometimes see her as a temptress who seduced David into setting off a chain of events that, ca that caused mayhem in many lives. I don't find any evidence for that in Scripture. But I do find concrete evidence where God's speaking and saying, God was displeased with what David did sends a prophet to call David out. And however we see her, the one thing we can be sure about is that God sovereignly works out his plans in and through her life. God's plans are bigger than Bathsheba, bigger than David. His purposes are accomplished in unlikely places through unlikely people, and so Bathsheba is another woman of Advent, another woman connected to the Christmas story that just screams and keeps screaming, at least I hope it keeps screaming of grace and keeps pointing to the Savior of the world whose life, death, and resurrection enables us to experience the grace of God in our unlikely lives in this unlikely place. And so Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. That is grace. Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus is the one who will take away the sins of the world. That is grace. None of us, including Bathsheba or Ruth, deserve any of it. But amazing grace rescues and restores. It changes, it transforms. It can make the best out of a messed up situation as it did in Bathsheba's life. And you see, the fact that Bathsheba isn't mentioned by name as I've already said, I do find interesting. It's fascinating that Matthew just refers to her as Uriah's wife because it forever stands as a reminder of David's sin. And I realize that all the talk of grace during this series, and I don't apologize for all the talk of grace during this series, you can never get enough grace, and I'm always gonna err on the side of grace. 
But I realize that with all the talk of grace, sometimes it can imply that sin doesn't really matter, that no matter what we do, God's grace will cover it, God's grace will trump it, God's grace will overlook it. And in some ways, that might be true. But David's story and the indirect reference here to Bathsheba reminds us that although great sin can be forgiven, thank God, because of Jesus, we must never trivialize sin. We must never attempt to sweep it under the carpet. Otherwise, we are in danger of a blatant misunderstanding of the consequences and the effects of sin. Sin doesn't define us. No way. But it can still determine certain aspects of your life. David was ultimately defined as how? How was David known as a man of what? A man after God's own heart. That was how David was defined, because of the grace of God. But you know something? His sin caused carnage. And that should never be forgotten. So I need to finish. So what's the takeaway out of this morning? Hopefully not. Hopefully it's just a retelling of stories that we do know, kind of know, not sure we really knew at, cert at certain levels. But here's just a number of things that I hope we'll get out of this morning. I hope that we will remember outside, and I hope we will remember that outsiders can be insiders, that the written off can be written in. I hope we will remember Ruth's vocal proclamation, declaration of faith, your God will be my God. Because that personal vocal proclamation, declaration of faith is so important. I hope we'll remember Ruth's noble character that spoke volumes because the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. How is your reputation? I will remember the importance of Bethlehem in the big story. It's not just a Christmas village. And we'll remember Bathsheba, the wife of someone else whose courage in maintaining the line of David through Solomon to Jesus should always be acknowledged, maybe even celebrated. And finally, always remember grace, but never forget the toxic nature and consequences of sin. We're gonna to stand together and sing as we close. Uh, God of grace, amazing wonder, irresistible, and here's the bit, free. Let's stand together and sing.